So have you really thought about what goes into your morning cup of coffee? Have you ever taken a look at the back of your coffee creamer to see what's actually inside the bottle? Well, if you do take a look, you might be surprised to find a number of chemicals, oils, and artificial flavors. But don't worry, Laird Superfoods is here to help change that. Laird Superfoods started in 2015 when big wave surfer Laird Hamilton was looking for a coffee but couldn't find one on the market that met his standards. Laird started experimenting with his own morning coffee nearly two decades ago. And he found that when he started adding fats, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. And eventually, when he felt like he had perfected his recipe, he started sharing it with friends in the surf community. And now, he's sharing it with all of the rest of us through Laird Superfoods. And Laird doesn't just make coffee, they also offer functional superfood creamers, instant lattes, prebiotic greens, and a variety of snacks and supplements full of wholesome, plant-based ingredients to keep you charged for wherever life takes you. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code GOPODCAST at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Welcome to episode 110 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. I am coming to you from the Florida Panhandle while Erica and I travel for the holidays. But by the time you are hearing this in the brand new year of 2024, she and I should be back home in Los Angeles. But as of right now, I'm beneath my parents' house in the dark recording this introduction. Hopefully everyone is having a great start to a brand new year. And I think this episode is a great way to start off the year because it is all about reliving past exploits and looking forward to brand new adventures. Today, we are talking to John Gray. He grew up as kind of the prototypical Southern California surfer boy, but over the years, he has developed into a backpacker, climber, canyoneer, and he and I have had a number of adventures together, which you'll hear all about in today's episode. So why don't you come along back to the summer of 2023 in a dark park in Redlands, California, so you can listen to John Gray and I sit around talking about climbing trips, water skiing adventures, building home gyms during COVID lockdowns, and what at that point was his upcoming expatriation to the Philippines. I think it's safe to say that a lot of you out there are coffee lovers. You probably brew something fresh every morning, or maybe you run to a local coffee shop or drive through on your way to work each morning. But have you ever taken the time to think about what is in your coffee or the other additives you add, like your coffee creamer? Well, Laird Superfood could help you up your coffee game with an entirely new coffee experience. With Laird, you'll get better ingredients, amazing taste, and functional benefits. All products are sustainable 
reliably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you are incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. Their coffees are made from all natural whole food ingredients, contain naturally occurring MCTs from coconut oil, have no artificial flavors, colors, or additives. And the Laird Superfood Creamers are crafted from the highest quality, all natural, real food ingredients. Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code GOPODCAST at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. My name is John Gray. I've been an outdoor enthusiast for years. Currently, I'm doing a lot of canyoneering, a little bit of rock climbing, and I'm willing to do pretty much anything given an opportunity. Yeah, and the way that you and I have known each other, and I've I've tried to think about this. I don't I don't remember exactly when we met, no. or how long ago it was, but we came together through that canyoneering meetup group that was a big thing around here for a good decade or so. Right. But I know you were doing a bunch of stuff before that. So let's run back to little bitty John Gray. All right. Where'd you grow up? Were you an outdoor kid? Were you not an outdoor kid? How'd you eventually transition into that stuff? So all right. so let's go all the way back to, I think you said it earlier, 1962. Is that what you said? 65. 65, 65. That's right. That's right. 65. Sorry. Sorry. I was making you three years older. <laughs> let's go all the way back to the wonderful year of 1965 and talk about if you could describe in detail the actual birthing process (laughs) yeah i can i remember that (laughs) now yeah tell us about where you grew up and 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 what your childhood was like sure i i grew up in uh pretty much in orange county most of my life and that's orange county california correct not not florida yeah exactly i was born in la county i've been in orange county since i was probably five years old Back then, I was I was an active outdoor kid, but I didn't play sports or anything like that. I always did the uh, the solo sports. Basically, I grew up and my parents had a boat, and we would go out to the Colorado River, Lake Mojave, and we'd go skiing every time, every holiday. We would go out there camp and ski, and I got pretty good at it. I was actually thinking about going competing. That's when the gas prices went through the roof, and uh, kind of put a kibosh on that. From there, I start surfing when I was about 12. I was bleach blonde surfer kid. I was down at the beach at least five days a week during summertime and three days a week during school. I would purposely do things like take zero period PE so I would be out by two something and grab a ride with one of my buddies down to Newport and we'd go surfing. It was a lot of fun. Continued surfing for decades. I still surf occasionally. Moved from short boards to long boards and hang out at uh, San Onofre Old Man's Surf Beach. Did that for quite a while. The whole outdoor stuff started after I was divorced. I joined a meetup group, went uh, to Orange County Hiking Club and started meeting people through that. That led into backpacking. Did quite a few Sierra trips. Did Mount Whitney uh, from Onion Valley and Horseshoe Meadows twice. And that's what inspired me to start climbing. So I'm up there. And I see these guys pop up with their helmets and trad gear. That moment, I'm like, I'm doing that. So went down to Whitney Portal Bookstore, picked up the best climbs of Eastern Sierra, and uh, 
started doing more research. That led me to going to an indoor gym and trying out bouldering for the first time. That was an interesting experience. I was about 50 pounds heavier at the time, and I wasn't very good at it. But it inspired me to get out there and do more. And then through meetups, I you know met some climbers. I was really looking for meetup groups, and I couldn't find any So for climbing. So I ended up finding a canyoneering group out of San Diego. Uh, Kirk Beal was, uh, at the time, he was a canyon leader for ACA and he was putting on some uh, you know skills training classes i uh, got involved that with that so i ended up getting what uber adventures calls level four training through those people so that's what really got me into the canyon scene and of course then i started running canyons here in the local san gabriel mountains because of that it was a blast it was a really good time and i met some great people through that and that's how i started all that so you just covered a lot of ground and and what like 50 years of 45 years or something <laughs> of your life yeah uh, pretty succinctly so we're going to rewind a bit and go all the way back so you said early on your parents had a boat you'd go out and it was water skiing yeah so let's let's dive into that a little bit so what age are we talking about are we talking about like seven eight years old or we're talking like 10 years old how old were you i believe i was five uh when we started so so not old enough to be competent at all oh not at all so (laughs) no my the first time i water skied was my dad got us in the swimming pool in a pair of dual tandem where the two skis and pulled me on the pool deck and i learned how to get up on the plane and doing that so wait he would just pull you with his hands yeah he would just run so just p- yank the rope and yeah. then pull you across the pool exactly <laughs> it worked and i learned how to ski because of that from there we ended up out at uh, lake mojave again i was pretty good i was you know skiing on two two skis at the time for a little while and then got up on a, a single ski from there and i fell in love with it and I was pretty um, pretty brave, doing things like wake jumping, cutting, jumping. It was a blast. Part of the uh, whole being out there, like Mojave, we would what we would do is take the boat out and we would camp on the shoreline, wake up in the morning with, to perfect glass, and go ski till about you know 10 in the morning till it got choppy, and then hang out on the shoreline and fish for bass and do stuff like that. So I'm not familiar with Lake Mojave, and I think most people have heard of the Mojave Desert, Mm -hmm. and they just assume, okay, well, it's hot-ass desert. How is there a lake there? So is this a natural lake, or is this a man-made lake? It's a man-made lake. It's like a reservoir of some sort, or it's just a recreational lake? It's uh, it's part of the reservoir systems for, for California, or the western U.S. Lake Mojave is right below the Hoover Dam, so, it, you know, Lake Mead. So it's just part of that water system. Oh, okay, right. So, yeah, okay. Because yeah. most people are aware of Lake Mead and, and know of that. I didn't realize, or maybe I've forgotten that Lake Mojave and that they're all part of that same. Right. Yeah, sweet. So, yeah, right near Black Canyon. Exactly. And all that stuff. Yeah, which is a great area. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, we were tend to be down more in the middle, the Cottonwood Cove area, central of the lake, and I think the lake's 20-some miles long. That's just where my parents liked going, so we ended up there most of the time. And so your parents have this boat, your dad drags you around in the swimming pool, and then he drags you around on the boat. Um, my experiences, I've never done proper water skiing, but my experiences is being put on like an inflatable donut or something, and typically what the parents or the adults try to do is see how much they can abuse the children before <laughs> they fall off of that donut right. and bounce across <laughs> the water, the concrete water. 
Is that how your dad <laughs> got you into water skiing, no. or was it a different approach? No, it was basically just get on it and ski, because uh, my dad had experience, and so did my mom. So it was kind of like they already knew what they were doing. Now we got out there and you know did our best and improved every time we went out, and eventually got to the point where it was, you know, I was looking to go into competition, so. And, and we're talking early, early 70s at this point. Yeah, it would be about, I would imagine about 75 into the, into the, into the 80s. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you did stick with it for a while then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So once you got into surfing, you didn't just turn your back on lake water. No. Flat water. No. I would still ski today if somebody had a boat. Up to about five years ago, we were going out to Laughlin and wakeboarding. And I found out that it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a different experience, and the jumping is a lot higher jumping, and you hit the water a lot harder <laughs> when you're uh, doing that. So, but yeah, I would continue doing it if someone had a boat. Yeah, I think the interesting thing too with your with your family starting you out around five years old is you're right at that age where you're maybe overly scared of some things, but also not aware of what you should actually be afraid of. I was more, I, I think I was just fearless and didn't know better. I never, you know, I never felt intimidated by the sport or any of that. So yeah, it was a good time. So you said that you almost started competing or you did a little bit. My parents and I were talking about doing it and that's when one of the gas crises hit. I can't remember which one, but it, gas went from probably under a dollar a gallon to two dollars a gallon or something like that at the time. So it was, it was cost prohibitive. Right, just made it impractical to take out the boat. Yep, exactly. And so if your parents were getting you into these activities on the boat, was that like your primary outdoor activity with your family or did you have a family that was like more interested in various sorts of pursuits like that? The skiing was basically it. I mean, we were active in the sense that you know, get out and walk in neighborhoods and things like that, but we never really were like hiking and you know doing any of the stuff I do now. So your dad was a boat guy and that he, was the draw. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think a lot of dads are boat guys. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> There's something about boats that attracts fathers in yep. particular. So you said a buddy of yours helped you become a surfer. Because mm -hmm. I know for me, like growing up in Louisiana where there was no surfing whatsoever, I was aware of it on TV and I thought it looked like the coolest, most awesome thing. And I wanted to be a surfer and I pretended I could talk like one. But besides going to the beach in the panhandle of Florida growing up where there wasn't crazy surf and no real surfing opportunities, right. there was no like surfing in my life. And even once I moved out here, it took me a while to finally give it a try. But you clearly have better access. Did you just decide to give it a try because it was there? Or was it one of those things that like suddenly was all over television or your buddy got super into it? Like what was the thing that made you say, oh yeah, let's give, give that a try? One of my neighbors was selling a six foot six foot eight big wave board it was way too big for me at the time and i bought the board and i was like okay now i gotta go use this thing and i had some friends that were surfing i conned my dad in to take me down to the beach and all my buddies and just got better at it and then during the summertime my dad worked down at hogue hospital in newport beach so and we lived in villa park which is a town near orange city of orange uh, anyway, he would take us down to the beach in the morning when he was going to work, and we'd hang out all day, and then he'd take us back home. So we were down there for five days a week, and it was great. It was an awesome time. So the thing about surfing is that it's notorious for, like, this cliquish attitude, right, mm -hmm. where 
Certain people think that they have the right to certain beaches and other people shouldn't be allowed there. Fights break out in certain beaches. And there are other beaches where people are totally cool and they don't care if beginners are there. Yep. Did you encounter any of that? Because you're talking about, you said you're about 10 years old or so. Mm-hmm. Did you encounter these bullying tactics where people were trying to throw you off your beaches or did you find it very welcoming or were you going to the right beaches where it wasn't an issue? Yeah, since I was in Newport Beach, it was a pretty welcoming place. There's no localism really. Obviously, you had to learn the etiquette of how to how to catch waves. You know, if somebody's on it first, you don't take off on them, things like that. Never got any altercations. Um, it was pretty mellow. You know, there's places like Palos Verdes where they would, you know, they would slash your tires if you were caught on out in the waves. They throw rocks at you from the cliff. Um, none of that stuff happened for me. It was always pretty friendly. How was your experience going out the first time? Because I find with surfing, I think it's one of those things where people go out and they're like, wow, I'm better at this than I expected, or this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. I was pretty terrible at it. was out there paddling, catching waves, but... And you said you were on a board that was too big for you anyway. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah basically... So it was a long way, excuse me, a big wave board called a gun is the style. So it was really skinny. So it was not very forgiving. It's not like a long board where you can paddle and catch waves and it's really sturdy, steady. No, this was more twitchy and it took me a while to learn to get up on the board and ride. When you start surfing, the first thing that typically happens is you go straight and your nose goes under and you end up pearl diving and getting thrown off the board. After a while, I figured out how not to do that anymore and started surfing progressively bigger surf and tube riding and stuff like that. It was it was a blast back then. I, I do know you as a surfer, and I think we've even gone out together mm-hmm. a couple of times. But you even say now that it's a thing you do sometimes, but not as often. So how did it kind of taper off? What were replaced? Is it just because you became a teenager and you started chasing girls instead, or was it... No, along the lines. too many hobbies and sports and time. Fast forward a few years and I was surfing constantly, but then I got married and we had three kids. And how old were you at the time when you got married? Because I've heard of you talk about it in your past, but yeah. I'm never clear how long ago. It, I was. I got married at 30 something. The woman I married, I knew just out of high school. We saw each other off and on for a while. And then when I came back from college, she showed up one time at my roommate's uh, house and we hit it off and we were together for probably 12 to 15 years i can't remember now and then yeah we had three kids uh two girls and a boy and that that was the biggest distraction of t- for time wise plus at the time i was working 60 hour weeks and i did continue to surf uh probably once a week or so we'd go out go at six in the morning we'd hit the beach and surf before going to work so i I kept at it but not as much as i'd like that timeline totally makes sense then if you if you're getting into surfing and and other things and then you get married and then you have to raise three kids and work a mini hour full-time job Mm -hmm. it totally tracks that your priorities are going to shift to that yep but it sounds like priorities shifted again later back towards those things later in life was it triggered partly from the divorce or was it something that came along before that happened no it pretty much was uh, the divorce gave me all kinds of free time at some point i had the kids 50 percent of the time and then later on uh, a lot less than that so since i was looking for friends you know kind of you know friends kind of part ways when you get married at least in my case they did 
So I needed activity partners. So I went on meetup, joined Orange County Hiking, and that led into all the outdoor stuff I do now. Yeah, what time period are we talking about here? I I would say it was probably about 15 years ago when I started with the hiking groups. Mm -hmm. And I think I've been canyoneering 12. We're talking 2007, 2008, somewhere along those lines. Correct. So around the time that smartphones and cell phones are becoming more dominant part of our lives, and then also the internet's evolving more towards these sorts of things where they have meetup group and various other groups that really help people come together in a way it's one of the nice things people like to people like to hate on the internet but Mm -hmm. one of the great things that has come from it is things like meetup where people can find like-minded individuals to pursue activities with. exactly and yeah if anyone's ever you know they need to make more friends you know going and joining a hiking group is the best thing anyone could ever do because it opens up the doors to backpacking and other things. And if you find uh, another sport that goes complements that, then, yeah, it's great. And I know that you've told me that you had put on a lot of weight at some point in your life. Was that during the time that you were married, or was that before then? Yeah, when I was married, I I was 100 pounds heavier than I am now. That mainly was because entertainment was going out to eat, and uh, I had three kids, two in diapers at any time. I didn't get a whole lot of physical activity. Plus, I was working 12-hour days at least. It wasn't good. <laughs> so by the time you joined that hiking group, are you still 100 pounds heavier than you are now? <clears throat> I got No, actually, I got down just, just after the divorce. I lost a lot of weight fast. Probably lost 100 pounds right then. But then, then I put it back on and off going forward through the, through the years to the point where started rock climbing and uh, did cat in the hat at Red Rocks. I failed so miserably on the climb that I ended up getting whip, uh, full body whiplash. And I'm like, I was pissed at myself for doing that. So I immediately went to the climbing gym, started lifting and started eating right and lost all the weight. Yeah, because in the time I've known you, which is maybe a decade, maybe a little bit more, something like that, I've definitely seen you adopt like, like some pretty stringent exercise routines. Mm-hmm. Like, like I've I've never known you to be the hundred pound heavier guy at all. But I've definitely known you to be like a little heavier than you are now. And then yeah. I've known you to say like, oh, I'm really gonna get into exercising, and I'm like, okay, cool. And then I see you six months later, and it's like, oh shit, you you really got into it, and you've and you've gotten like fit and and yeah. like super ripped compared to how you were the six months I had seen you before that. Yeah, so I was rock climbing at the time I was out in uh, Las Vegas uh, living with a friend and the climbing gym was an hour away from the house. The uh, regular weightlifting gym was 10 minutes away. So I started lifting and I got pretty into it. I was in the gym probably four to five days a week. I was you know, running a upper lower split. So I, you know, I was cycling through the same exercise over and over again and focused on getting strong and put some muscle on. It was, it was a good thing. So that's how I got into that part of it anyway. And it seems like you've pretty much kept to that. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty diligent during COVID. I built myself a home gym, got, you know, 440 pounds of bumper plates, a squat rack, uh, you know, all the benches, built myself a pulley system out of rescue gear. Yeah, I stayed with it pretty diligently. And the last couple of months I've kind of slacked off because uh, a move is coming up here in the future. I definitely do the exercise routines. It makes me feel better and makes me look better. 
so I've stuck with it. Yeah, and you mentioned building out the home gym during COVID, which is what everybody in the United States decided to do simultaneously. Right. So how difficult was it for you to build out that home gym? Because I could tell you, for me, just to acquire some dumbbells, some adjustable dumbbells, it took me something like three months to be able to yeah. find someone I could buy those. It, it was it was difficult. At the time I built this pulley system out of rope so I was doing pull downs I was doing bicep curls all the stuff using all the some free weights and pulleys so I kept shopping around and prices were through the roof I couldn't find anything and I joined a reddit group that would say hey here's the deal of the day of equipment out there and somebody posted up this company uh, can't remember the name right now you know get rxd it's a CrossFit yeah, outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, maybe I'm thinking RTX. This is different from yeah, RTX. Yeah, it's, it, okay. basically they make gym equipment for for uh, CrossFit gyms. So it's, you know, professional grade. It's like Rogue, just a different name. I got on there and someone said, they've got stuff. I went on there. I got my barbell plates, squat rack, all that at reasonable prices and had it shipped to me within two weeks on a giant pallet. So I scored. Yeah, you got lucky. <laughs> yeah. I was so desperate at one point, I started looking on Craigslist, which yeah. I don't even think people use anymore. And I was finding these weird ass things in LA where the address would be like some empty warehouse somewhere. Yep. And they'd be like, we have 500 dumbbells, <laughs> show up and pick from the selection. And I'd call and sometimes it'd be like a dead number. And then other yeah. times they'd be like, yeah, sure. We're open between like these weird hours. Yeah. And I gave up on that stuff pretty quickly, but that's how desperate it had so, gotten. So back then people were going on Rogue's website and they were buying up as many weights as they possibly could. And they were reselling them. Let's say they've got them for a dollar a pound plus shipping, whatever. They would charge $2 a pound for that, uh, mm-hmm. that equipment. So they were scalping making money like any entrepreneur should so that's why it was really hard to get equipment because the professional scalpers were they weren't stealing inventory they were buying up the inventory before the street person could do it what i ultimately ended up with and they have nothing to do with this show and they're giving me no money i'm just gonna (laughs) just gonna name drop them because i love the product are you familiar with core home fitness have you come across them no i haven't so I bought their dumbbells and they're the, they're the adjustable kind. They go from like five pounds to 55 pounds or 60 pounds or something like that. But what's nice about them is, you know, how some of these adjustable ones are all oddly shaped. Yeah. And like the balance is all weird on them as you adjust the plates. Yep. So this one, they're round plates. They're pretty flat. And to make the adjustments, all you do is rotate the handle. Oh, yeah, that's cool. So within seconds, you can go from whatever you want, from 5 to 55. You just rotate like a few times and lift it up. You're good to go. Right. The balance shifts a little bit based on which plates are on, but mm-hmm. never drastically. Right. And so they're the closest thing I've come across to just straight up dumbbells right instead of like these wonky ass dumbbells that i've seen like those i don't remember who makes it but there's one that where they're like rectangular shaped power blocks yeah those are terrible i have them do you like them uh i like this fact that they don't take a lot of space uh if you get the right kit you can get them up to 90 pounds it would be more convenient to have real dumbbells because you can just go grab a yeah. 20 off the rack and grab a 25 off the next you know versus pulling a plastic pin out putting a new weight around it and slapping the pin back it's it's not the best but they work yeah because i remember trying those at someone's house one time and i forget which weight it was but there's one where basically you just end up with the plates on the furthest ends right. and nothing in between oh yeah and these the balance these, was so weird now these grow as basically they're like a nesting doll so the middle is your let's say 20 pounds 
and then if you want to add 10 more pounds you drop it into the cradle and you grab one more weight plate and then you put the pin in and lift them so they grow exponentially larger so when like rowing with 90 pounds it's pretty huge bulky looking weight <laughs> all right so on a scale of one to ten one being don't ever buy these to ten being absolutely go out and buy these right now where are you for those particular weights uh i would say probably an eight i would say buy them okay that's pretty good yeah because they don't take much room the entire 180 pounds of weight takes up probably two foot by three foot it's great for if you're in a small gym or working out in the house do you remember what weight range they cover uh basically i think it's 15 to 90 okay, my, my so, set yeah. okay so that's pretty good they go pretty high up yep. so the core home fitness ones i have they go five to 55 okay so you can't get to the higher weights but the ergonomics i think are super good so yeah. i would give them a nine. Oh, that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i would give anything a 10 but but yeah i would give them a nine and since we're masturbating over <laughs> exercise equipment right now it, describe the pulley system that you built is this like some shit where you took like a, a micro traction or something or just a straight up pulley and what would you do what'd you build okay so i was long line slack lining in the park so i would use three inch single pulleys like a rescue pulley and i took a 20 foot section of nine mil climbing rope basically put a loop on the end for the you know for, for a clip and i would clip the weights on and then I went and bought handles for it. Uh, I had, you know, single handle attachments and I had lap pull downs with both sides and all that stuff. So it was basically like when you go to the gym, just like going to the gym. So did you attach these to your squat rack or did you attach them to like the ceiling? Where did you uh, attach the pulleys? Yeah, so there was a pull-up bar on the squat rack. So I would okay. attach to that using some webbing. I would, you know, put them out in the middle when I wanted to use it and I didn't slide them over the okay, other yeah, side to get them out of the way. It worked great. I mean, I definitely got stronger. First half of COVID, I got really strong doing that. And actually, I thought I was going to lose strength, and I, I gained strength through that process. So, no, they were great. So, one of the other things you mentioned was when you got into climbing. So, you, you joined this hiking club, and so that was getting you out hiking and meeting new people. Yep. And you said at some point you decided to try out the bouldering gym. Which, which gym was it? Uh, it was a gym in Anaheim Hills. I don't remember the name of it. It's been so many years since I've been there. It was a small, kind of a hole in the wall. It was, they had bouldering and they had sport climbing, climbing on the roof in the gym. So you had to either be- What? Yeah. Describe what you mean by this. Like, so, a, like the ceiling? And the ceiling. Or on the roof? No, in the, the, on the ceiling. So okay. basically you climb the wall up. I would say it's probably 30 foot high ceilings in the place. You'd climb the wall up, sport lead. And then you'd go on these big juggy holds and you'd go across the gym, probably 50 feet. So it'd be like cave climbing, except instead of building out a, a bouldering cave, they just used the ceiling. Yeah, the, okay. exactly. Uh, I never did that. I was never that good. I don't think I had the strength at the time. <laughs> was this one of those gyms back in the day where everything was tape-based? Yeah, it, that one was tape-based and they also did really weird stuff. They would take like golf clubs and screw those under the wall and those would be holds. Oh, funny. So. And so for people that don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about tape-based, people that are just used to modern gyms where they have color-coded holds that are very easy to recognize and follow. 
the holds would just kind of be multicolored anything. The color didn't matter whatsoever. It was just right. whatever the hold manufacturer decided or whatever plastic they had available. Yep. And then they would take colored duct tape yep. and, and place it on the wall underneath the holds. And it would invariably come off or get dirty. I always found it, at least the few times I went to a gym back in those days, I always found it really confusing to figure out what the routes were. It was super challenging and sometimes they would use a red, white, and blue duct tape, and then the next one over would be, I don't know, red, white, and green, and you sometimes you just couldn't tell what the holes were unless you mapped everything out. Yeah, and, and they'd put like colored duct tape square around the starting hole right. and like the finishing hole or yeah. something. Yeah, and they would have a card there saying this is V0 through V9, whatever that gem had. I feel like in those days too, a lot of times those ratings were a little closer to actual outdoor ratings. They weren't quite as soft as they've gotten a lot of gyms now, I think. Yeah, it was pretty steep. But, you know, bouldering for me was just a gateway to getting to the getting a rock. That's my whole goal. It's funny because in the time I've known you, so we've climbed together several mm. times, and maybe we'll tell some of our mishap stories. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've got a few of those. Um, but I've never known you, like I've known you to go to a gym mm -hmm. and to go to a climbing gym, but I never knew you, like thought of you as a climbing gym rat. And mm -hmm. so it's interesting. I think this is the first time I've ever learned that you got introduced through the gym. I was solo, didn't know anybody that did climbing. Kind of, For me, it was kind of a leap of faith. I'm going to do something I've never done before, had really no introduction other than those guys in Mount Whitney had seen climbing on TV maybe, but never didn't know anything about it. So I was just really excited and enthusiastic about it. So went to the climbing gym and I did that for quite a while. The crowd wasn't for me though, because it was guys, it was guys and girls in their twenties and here I am at the time, probably 40 years old. So I was like the old man hanging out there. Wasn't an inviting group to hang out with because you know, I'm just not that that person but the outdoor climbing that's where i met everybody age appropriate let's say turned out to be the best thing i could have done yeah how'd you transition to outside from this bouldering gym more than likely from canyoneering so canyoneers and climbers cross pollinate and some people you know some people do both i believe there was a trip to point doom malibu i ended up going climbing there and that that was great. I really enjoyed that. Point Doom is at least on the the side where you would see the Statue of Liberty in the Apes movie. Yeah. Yeah. So Point Doom, for anyone listening that doesn't know, you do know what Point Doom is because it's this area on the beach in Malibu area. What beach is that? That's um, it's like near Heathercliff or something like that. But um, okay, so it's this beach that's well known. It has an area called Point Doom and it's this prominence that's like right at the edge of the beach. And you can climb on the beach side and you can climb on the ocean side and they have different routes and everyone has seen it because one yes as you as you pointed out it's the shot at the end of the original planet of the apes with the damn you damn you with the statue of liberty in the ocean and people don't realize this in the iron man movies they digitally created a Iron Man's home on the top of Point Doom. So you've also seen it when you've seen Iron Man flying away from his home in yep. Iron Man movies. And if you've ever seen a car commercial at the beach, that's Point Doom. It's super easy to get film trucks in there. So that's why every commercial is shot there. Yeah. The rock prominence is about 90 feet tall. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually a quite good place to climb because it's just at that point where it's like considerably high enough to be like a good pitch of something. The beach side, the ratings, I think, only go up to like nine it's like seven yeah. to nine, mostly slabby. And then the ocean side, it's more like in the tens range. Right. It's a few different tens. And, it, and it's all top rope 
Or if you're stupid like me, they have bolts on the wall on the beach side and you can lead it, but everyone says it's a terrible idea. But it didn't yeah. stop me in my early days from doing a bunch of leads there. Yeah, the, the bolts get rusty and the rock is some conglomerate. It's not granite. It's not sandstone. It's just this, it's just a compressed pebbles. It's an interesting rock type. In my early days when I got into sport leading, I would do it there frequently. And I made the mistake one day of showing up and the bottom of the wall was soaking wet. And I thought, oh, as I go higher, it will be dry. And uh, I was wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I would I was drying off holds with my chalk. I would take chalk oh, out of my yeah. chalk bag and then like rub it on the hold, let milk roll down. And the guy that was belaying me was a friend of mine, old business partner too. He didn't really know much about climbing, so he would have caught me, but I don't know if it would have been a great catch. Right. Yeah. And theoretically, those bolts maybe wouldn't have held, but I, I think they would have held. Yeah. So you went out to Point Doom. Mm -hmm. You had a good time there with yep. Canyoneer people. Because I feel like at some point... You and I met as canyoneers, and at some point we realized we were both climbers also. Right. I wonder if that was because of Red Rock Rendezvous. Do you want to tell people about Red Rock Rendezvous? Because I think we both miss it a lot. Yeah. Red Rock Rendezvous is a, a, an event where climbers from all over the country would show up at a private ranch near Red Rock uh, Conservation Area. Right outside of Vegas. Yeah, outside of Vegas. It was a combination of a giant party at night with bands and award ceremonies for the Sherpa that did Everest like four times, you know, things like that would be going on. There would be vendors hanging out, so you'd have Black Diamond, Petzl, all of them demonstrating their gear, and some of them let you rent or borrow the gear and take it out the next day. It also had clinics going on, so you could, if you're a brand new climber, you could learn how to top rope, or if you been around a while and you wanted to learn aid climbing you could do all that in one this one festival and they'd also have like adjacent things like climbing adjacent things like map and compass or yoga yeah because even erica my wife would go she doesn't like climbing she would go almost every year with me and if she took clinics she'd take like yoga or cleanup and like all these right. other clinics yeah yeah it was a blast and unfortunately the mountain gear uh, yeah mountain gear had to stop doing it i think mountain gear went out of business that's that's too yeah. yeah so yeah unfortunately that event hasn't happened in years but i would love to go back if they ever do it again and one of the, one of my favorite things about it too was that the field next to the event grounds was where they'd have us all camp. And so yeah. you just have the hundreds of tents. Yep. And so you'd everybody would go next door to the grounds and participate in all the events, drink the included beer every night. And then we'd all make our way back to our tents in various degrees of sobriety or drunkenness. Right. And there were lots of really fun nights there. Like the time I got strangers to see how many people we could squeeze into this enormous tent. And then it turned into <laughs> be a whole lot of people. Yeah, it was, it was a blast. You'd get to know your neighbors. Uh, classically, it was held in March, which is like the windy season in Vegas, apparently. So you pitch your tent and uh, it would it would blow away. I mean, literally just tumble away like tumblebees. There'd be 10 tents, 20 tents against a fence. Yeah, or in a tree. Literally, in a tree. literally in a tree. I'd wake yeah. up sometimes and see a tent in a right. tree. Yeah, and then if you're unlucky when you were at the clinics or climbing the, the next day, the, it'd be just devastated when you came back. We would take our poles down and then throw rocks on top of the tent whenever right. we left. It was the kind of place where I would be in a dome tent and the tent would fold over so hard it would hit me in the face yeah. and pop right back out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sleeping at night could be tricky sometimes. Yeah. And then other years it wouldn't be windy at all. Right. Or another year it would be pouring rain the whole time. Exactly. Yeah, it, it varied year to year, but it was it was a great time and because I went to a lot of them and I think you did too and what we mm -hmm. would start doing is we realized 
well, at the event, we're not really going to climb. We're going to take clinics and we're going to hang out and we're going to do everything else. But we'll stick around a day or two extra when everybody's left and then go climb multi-pitch stuff in the park. Right. Which yeah. is my favorite thing about Red Rock. Yeah. If you ever, if you ever been to Red Rock, it's super beautiful. It's 15 minutes away from Vegas, pretty much. And it's sandstone and... I think it's just sandstone and uh, super high cliffs. Um, you can do multi-pitch uh, sport and trad climbing there. And then you can just, uh, you know, do a crag day and go to the sport climbing areas. It's, it's an awesome place. So how did you transition into multi-pitch climbs? Was it at Red Rock or was it a different way? Because for me, I had a guide one year at the Red Rock Rendezvous take me up a multi-pitch in Red Rock. And then from there, I started going out on my own. I think you were the, my first multi-pitch climb partner. Really? Yeah. Either that? Yeah, I think so. What route would that have been? Like physical graffiti or something? Might have been Cathedral Peak. No, really? No. Cathedral was not your first multi-pitch. I did a lot of trad climbing in J-Tree and stuff, but I think that oh, was like single-pitch stuff. Single-pitch stuff, but I think that was my first multi. Interesting. So the way it all worked out for me, it was like 2010, I was like, I want to get into climbing. I'm going to take climbing lessons. And then they taught me like the basics. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I was like, I want to learn how to lead. So then I took like an REI class. Mm-hmm. And then, then that was sport leading. And then from there, I was like, I want to learn how to trad lead. I think I took some clinics at Red Rock and then just started to figure it out and meet other yeah. people and, and whatever and then I took a multi-pitch and I would take multi-pitch clinics I would take whatever fucking clinic I could yeah. take at Red Rock and then eventually it just all worked out yeah so what was your process then did you do any of the courses or did you just meet people that were helping to, to get you in because because transitioning into leading is not as simple as like transitioning into top roping or bouldering uh so basically David Doucette he was running a lot of stuff in J-Tree at the time, and we were had some top rope days. This is around Christmas time, because I remember I bought my gear at a Christmas sale. We did a little bit of sport climbing, and then I tradition, transitioned directly into trad climbing. I went and bought a really cheap set of cams off of eBay. They're old. They needed to be restrung, but I wasn't using them for climbing. I just was placing them, learning how to set my gear, you know, bounce testing it, making sure it all worked. And then I went all in and bought a single rack, half a rack, depending on who you talk to. I bought, you know, 0.5 through a six set of uh, Black Diamond cams. My first trad climb was, trad lead was at Dairy Queen Wall, J-Tree. It was like a 5.4, not very difficult, but that was my first try to leave. How long, like 40 feet, 50 feet? It was probably, it was, it was half a rope length, so probably 30 meters. Okay, so like 100 feet? Yeah. Because my first trad lead was also a 5.4 in Joshua Tree. Yeah. And I quickly realized that it was going to be hard to protect certain parts of it. And I ended up running out a large portion of it. I think I put three pieces in and like 40 or 50 feet. It was a little uncomfortable part of the way up. And then when I got to the top, I felt so great. I was so proud of myself. Oh, yeah. I started waving to other people <laughs> on top of the rock. I was just like high off of off of the moment. What was your experience on the Dairy Queen wall for your first one? It because was, it can be fucking terrifying. It, it was easy <laughs> climbing, really. And 5-4, I mean. But 5-4 in Joshua Tree can be scary sometimes, especially if it's hard to protect. That stuff we climbed today at Monkey Face was probably more challenging than some of the climbing I was doing. It wasn't that cha- that hard. Mm-hmm. I placed, uh, if I remember right, I placed a lot of, like, number one through four cams in that route. Oh, so it had some fat cracks in it. Yeah, it had some big cracks at the top. 
but it was kind of like whole leg crack climbing. You would be up in, into your knee in the crack. Okay, okay. So it was pretty shallow angle or pretty shallow. So like kind of off with you. It was off with you and yeah. And of course, being a cannoneer, I already know how to place gear and build anchors and do all this other stuff. So that gave me a leg up. It wasn't like handing somebody a set of cans and go, here, learn how to trad climb. I already knew rope work and all this from probably five plus years of experience running canyons. So the transition was easy. I, I got pretty good at it pretty fast. I mean, I was never a hard climber because I, I, I handicapped myself by going from being a top rope climber to going to trad. It's kind of like somebody goes from, it would be like a hunter that gets pretty good with a rifle but can't actually shoot anything yet and then transitioning over to bow hunting. No, just, <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about because, so I started climbing in 2010. So it's been 13 years now. And I feel like I've been at a plateau for 12 of those years. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing. So the first year, I was top roping for a few months, got into leading sport pretty quickly. But as soon as you start leading, you drop your grade a little bit. So what yep. I was willing to do on top rope, I wasn't willing to try that hard on sport, but I was still willing to do decent. Mm -hmm. Within a few months, probably another six months from there, I transitioned to doing trad stuff too. And then you drop your grade a lot. Right. Because there's a lot more involved the routes are trickier and protecting is trickier and then also i got into canyoneering at the same time which takes you away from it and right. then it's a lot easier for me for whatever reason to meet canyoneers than it is to meet people that will consistently keep climbing and so yeah same situation every few years i'll be like no i need to devote more time to climbing and then i'll try to push the grades again and then i'll get a little bit better again. Yep. then I don't feel like I ever get far above that plateau and and I know exactly what you mean yep yeah it's a challenge and then I laid off climbing for a little well because of COVID and some other things just life got in the way you know I was leading eight you know, five eights on sport climbing and I felt really comfortable doing it. it was not a big deal I went to Holcomb Valley recently went back to climb those and it was like I couldn't get into I couldn't get back to the lead head I was basically following those routes and barely, barely finishing them. I just been out of the sport too long. So that's why I want to get back into it, but it's going to be a different place. <laughs> so you think that when we climbed Cathedral, that was your first multi-pitch? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So for people listening, Cathedral Peak, what we're talking about is a route in Tuolumne in the high country of Yosemite. So technically it's an alpine route because of its altitude, though there's no snow or ice or anything difficult like that. But you do you do feel the altitude some and it does yeah. affect your climbing some. And it's what, six pitches? Six a pitches. A five, six-ish? There's a five, seven chimney. Everything else is five, six or lower. There are a lot of soloists that do it. A lot of people yeah. do it as part of this trifecta where they also do Mathis Crest and um, what's the other one? Tanaya Peak or something they do that day? Yeah. I forget what the third is. Yeah. So then you and I doing those six pitches. Oh, yeah. We stayed at that campground that night before. Right. And there was that asshole that wouldn't shut up. Yeah. Right? So we couldn't get any sleep in our hammocks. And then we got up that morning, did that long or that decent hike in, that climb, and then the hike out. The trickiest part of that, about that route, I'll see if you remember this and agree, is the uh, descent. Well, the, the no. The hike off. The, well, it was a challenge. I it was Yeah, it was a challenge. Actually, the worst part was the summit on that route. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that because that thing's kind of tricky, that summit Okay, block. so you have two ways up one is you go straight up over the top it, it is pushing five six seven grade or you can go around the corner and there's basically a little canyon type trough with 2,000 foot of exposure and no way to really protect it well we went up that 
Well, and, and then you have to get off the block, which means you typically have to down lead it, which is climb back down that exposed section, placing and then removing. Your exactly. Yeah. But we got lucky. We got some soloists came up there and topped out and they're like, I wish I had an anchor. And they're like, build an anchor. We'll just toss your gear down to us. We propelled the 25 feet off to the deck and they threw our gear down and we got out of there scot-free. It was really nice, actually. And what I'll always remember is those soloists were doing that, that, that trifecta link up and they were, had already done the first two. They were finishing up on Cathedral yep. and on the descent, that dude said, oh, this shit is sketchy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing when, when they get scared. <laughs> so since you and I have been on Cathedral, I have gone back a few years later, and we did that time, it was Mark and I, we did have to do the down lead mm-hmm. off of the summit. And it's not that bad. No, it just looks but, bad. <laughs> but it's, you know, there's some intimidation there. It's a little bit heady. Yeah, definitely. So then one of the things that happened with you and I years ago, when you that short period where you were living in Vegas, mm-hmm. I was out there. And I was like, hey, do you want to go do Solar Slab, which is this nine-pitch route, this nine-pitch 5-6 that you have to climb a different route to get to. And then we wanted to go to the top, which would mean there was a hike off. I had had this long week where that weekend I had gone to Death Valley and met with Scott Sweeney, past guest on this show. And if people remember who he is, he's this wild man who descends this stuff in Death Valley that no one else has bothered to do. Um, so going out to do some Scott Sweeney canyons are usually a pretty big undertaking. And then I went to NAB, which was happening in Vegas after that. And then I think I got two hours of sleep and we were going to meet in the dark outside right. of the park to go do Solar Slab. So knowing now that you said Cathedral, which is maybe your first multi-pitch, yeah. where does it put Solar Slab at this point in, in your um, resume? Like have you done like, a number of It's probably like third or fourth. Okay, so, so not that many. Not then. that many. I, no, I take that back. Because I feel I, like Cat in the Hat and some other things had probably happened before that, and probably physical graffiti. and. No, I, I take that back. We, t- we I climbed a ton with Jeff Sue out at Tequitz. Okay. So, yeah, I did a bunch of multi-pitch out there, actually. The the trough, 5'4", white, white... White Maiden's walkaway. Walkway, like 5'5", five, 5'6", five, 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 Yeah, something like there, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, left ski track five six so yeah i did a bunch of multi-pitch out there and then that then the vegas transition occurred but yeah that the vegas trip so we decided to meet outside the park at five something a.m it was dark out the reason being that you can't get into the park before like eight or nine in the morning exactly and we knew we had a long day ahead of us so we hike in i'm gonna guess about two miles through the desert to get out to the base of our route. It's just getting light as we get there, and then we decide we're gonna do a solar slab gully. We had another option to get up to the route, which was Johnny Vegas, which was what we wanted to do, and it's supposed to be a good route. Right. But it looked to us like some other people were getting on that route, and we had the wise idea of, let's do the easy 5-3 <laughs> and beat them to solar slab. Right, so this turned into being a fiasco. It was. We had some route finding problems, first of all. And, and why would that be? Our leader? <laughs> There's no fucking route. <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> it just, so from what I would call happened is we'd say, well, man, where, the, where does the route go? And we'd be like, well, it can't go through that. That's just trees yeah, and grass. Exactly. It must be the rocks over here because we're here to climb rocks. <laughs> right. No, guys, it's through the fucking trees. <laughs> right. So basically, it's reverse canyoneering. Instead of going down on rappel, you're climbing up this brushy, awful thing, 
and some of the some of the climbing is it's you know five three five four whatever it's not that challenging except there's this desert plant called cat's claw which basically has like fish hooks all over it you had to climb through these trees to get to your anchors so it was miserable doing that yeah we made it up took us forever it took us four hours yeah and i kept doing things like it must be this chimney over here and then i'd climb up the chimney and i'd be like this seems pretty tricky and then i'd look over and be like oh now that i'm above the trees i can see what the topo map showed me and that the route is actually over there on the other side of the trees and then i'd have to down climb this chimney and and go to you and be like oh john so i let us astray again we got we we got to keep going through the trees somebody sandbagged the gratings on that thing supposedly it was a five three route five four there were some five seven chimneys in there that were pretty tricky it's, yeah it was like two chimneys and they were definitely the hardest thing in there yeah exactly we managed to get up to the top of this thing uh this is it's late spring so it's not exactly cool uh temperature wise we get up to the top and i think we made it to, to the bottom of solar slab at 11 a.m and we wanted to be up there probably about 8 a.m we thought Okay, well, that's the nine-pitch route. That's what's going to take us a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the gully is supposed to be, what, three pitches? Though you can't really pitch it out because you're just climbing through trees and moving your rope over and over. But I think you ascend, what, like 300 feet in the end? Yeah. 400 feet? It was, yeah, it wasn't even that big a deal. It took us forever. It wasn't exactly fun. I would never recommend go- that gully ever to anybody. Do Johnny Vegas. It's a 5.7. It's classic. Do that one. It's much easier. Solar Slab Goalie is the only thing I've ever, after climbing, well, quote-unquote climbing it, went to Mountain Project and rated it bomb. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I've ever done that to. Yeah, it was horrible. So I don't know if you remember this. It took us four hours to get up to Goalie, and then the nine pitches of Solar Slab took us four hours. So it took yeah. us just as long to get up that stupid Goalie as it took us to climb Solar Slab. Right. It was, it was crazy. And the solar slab was a really fun climb. The first pitch is unprotectable till you get to your anchor. I think it was a. F- I was. I did that one. So I think yeah, I put did. a piece or two. In. Yeah. But it, you you've got to get up about fifty feet or so before you can put in a piece. Yeah. It was like five three, five two, five three. It wasn't very it's, it's hard, hard on the grade, but it was yeah. just pure slab. And it, this is uh, sandstone. Sometimes it's covered with what's called desert corduroy. It's basically this shellac that builds up on the rocks over years. So it's red rock with black features. It's it's great climbing. It's just kind of soft zone. Anyway, so we did the first pitch. I led the second pitch, which was like a, a, was a crack in a crack. So I led this thing up. It wasn't very challenging, but it was, the interesting part was when I topped out or got near my anchors, Look down, and there's 2,000 feet of exposure. Yeah, there was that little hole. Yeah, yeah, it was just a blind hole. So I'm not real good with exposure in the first place. If I go up into the Stratosphere Hotel, come off the elevator, my stomach turns. I get scared. But I can climb an 800-foot cliff, and I'm, I'm fine with it. It's not a big deal. So anyway, yeah, seeing that exposure for on that second pitch was pretty hairy. And then you took the next view. Yeah, the, the third and fourth we linked and by this point we've realized our big mistake of the day as you may recall in the dark at the trailhead when we were communicating how to combine our racks we miscommunicated and brought instead of a full rack a half rack right so anyone that doesn't know when you buy a set of cams from let's say 0.5 to 6 they sell it and they call it a rack that's a half rack 
It's only you need two of those. <laughs> yeah, or at least doubles of certain sizes for certain routes, right. depending on what you're going to bring. But we we had not brought doubles of anything, and I think we didn't even have certain sizes. And so we were realizing, like, oh, it'd be great if we had this. Oh, we don't have it, or we only have one. Yeah. And then for, yeah, third and fourth pitches, and this is this is kind of funny because it's Solar Slab, it's 5.6. It's not a difficult route. But the third and fourth pitch, the third pitch was a traverse over that I found hard to protect. And then I had to go up what was described as awkward flakes for the fourth pitch, which I felt was um, an accurate description. And I found that hard to protect too, especially with what we had. And so by the time I got up that fourth pitch and got to actual bolts and was able to build an anchor, I was shaking because I was so scared. And I think I had between those two pitches, I think I had four pieces in of questionable quality. Yeah, you would have took a whipper over 100 feet easy. It would have been ugly. You would have been bad, bad, bad. Yeah, I was scared for you. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember when you started, and you you moved out onto it, and you looked up at me, and you yelled, "You have huge balls!" <laughs> and I don't remember if I said anything back or if I was just thinking it was not intention. It was not by choice. <laughs> this is not a reflection on my bravery. Yeah, that was nuts. Then, then I think I took the next pitch. Yeah, you took the next two, which were like two cracks, which they're thank- I'm thankful you did because I'm terrible at crack climbing. Yeah, it was like mixed face crack climbing. And we're also now probably 3,000 feet off the ground, I think. Uh, I don't think it's that high. I think by the time you get to the top, it's like maybe 18 or 15 or something like that. I think it's like 15 by the time. You I, get to I can't top. remember. It's very exposed at this point. So I'm climbing up this crack, mixed face. I'm. I've sewed it up since, again, we had a gear problem here with not enough. I ran out of gear, and I bypassed the one anchor there was there, and I was going to run the whole rope length out. I managed to get up there, and I I ran out the last 50 to 75 feet. I had no gear in at all. That was pretty terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, but then we did the last two or three pitches, and I feel like they were no big deal. It was cruiser. It was fine up there. There was one I didn't place a piece, not because I couldn't, but just because... It didn't seem necessary. Right. And then I remember the last pitch, which I think a lot of people don't go all the way to the top, so they might not do this final one. There was like a chimney you got to squeeze through at the end, and that was the most complicated thing, and it was yeah. very comfortable. So I think we went from like this terrible start <laughs> in the gully to like psyching ourselves out for a while and then feeling super confident by yep. the last few pitches. Yep. And then we only brought one rope, uh, 60 meter, and we didn't want to bring the second rope because it's, you know, who wants to hold a dead body up the hill? So we decided to wrap off of Black Morpheus which added more time on the way out. It also out. meant we could hike down the painted bowls, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, was, it turned out to be a good climb. So meanwhile, I must have been super dehydrated, so I drank my last bit of water when we started that route, on, uh, started the uh, solar slab itself. So I went the entire day with no water and topped out. So we got back down to hiking out at probably seven, eight o'clock at night. Yeah, I think we got the car like 10 p.m. or something Yeah, stupid. it was like a 15 hour day. It was the longest I've ever done something like this. And I couldn't, could not get out of bed the next day. Literally like 
opening my hands and just stretching and feeling and my feet were the same way i was just beat up after that run i remember walking through the desert in the dark and it just all looked the same and the only thing that was kind of helpful was that we could see like the lights of vegas what's that big stupid light was that from the luxor yeah exactly we could see that and we're like it looks like it's maybe a little bit bigger now so maybe we're getting closer to where the cars should be it's funny that you were out of water because it's something with you and i when we climb that cathedral climb i had no food that whole day (laughs) yeah and i'm an eater and yeah yeah, by the time I was, we were done, I was starving. And yeah, you had no water that day, yeah. which what, what a great decision that was, was on both of our parts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, I brought plenty of water, but I drank it all on, on, the, on the gully on the way up. It was just like, I just needed it. So anyway, yeah, that was hellish. It was, it was a fun trip, but I want to repeat it the same way again. <laughs> I, I do think we should go reclimb it again, and I have a feeling it would be a very different experience. I think so, and too. And we'll be like, oh, wow, why did we have any issues with this before? Right. Yeah. No, it'll, it would be fun. I'd love to do it. One thing, before we get to the big final topic, the big surprise topic, the moving topic, uh, I want to hit up something that you mentioned earlier really quickly, which was you're talking about backpacking in the Sierra mm-hmm. and to Mount Whitney. Yep a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about that because Mount Whitney can be a really awesome experience. And that area for me was very different than what I expected it to be. It was much more impressive Mm -hmm. and more beautiful than I expected. And I think that maybe people don't realize how amazing that part of the Sierra can be. Yeah, it's incredible up there. So the first trip I did, we went in through Onion Valley through Curse Arch Pass. It's just an uphill climb. And you, I think it's about 11,000 foot is the pass. Yeah, so yeah, it's pretty it's like high up there. 11.3 or 11.5 yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. And you hike down past, like, I think 10 lakes. They're all beautiful, high Sierra, alpine lakes. Try, take a left, and you go on to the John Muir Trail at that point. And then you do a lot of high country hiking, back um, backpacking. Yeah, you go over Forrester then if you're going from on your yeah, yeah, exactly. What, Forrester's 13, mm-hmm. I think? Um, Forrester... Yeah, maybe 13 or just under 14 or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, like on the JMT, it's the highest pass. Yeah, it's big. And uh, so we basically did that. The trip was seven days, I believe. The final night, we ended up at Guitar Lake, which is a beautiful lake at 11,000 feet. It's above the tree line. So I don't know if this is the trip. I took my hammock with me and I brought a set of cams and strung them up between the rocks at the lake there and that's how I slept and the next day uh, did the summit of Whitney which is a pretty arduous climb you're going from 11,000 to 14,500 so and it's all on switchbacks uh, get up to the top of the Mount Whitney is beautiful up there uh, you can see all of the desert Death Valley you can see Death Valley from there so but during that trip I got sick I got altitude sickness at Guitar Lake. That's funny. I was just going to ask once you got done how you prepared to deal with the altitude. And I think now I know the answer may have been you didn't. (laughs) I didn't. uh, The thing is, I've tried that drug. I don't know if it's Diamox or what it's called. Yeah, Diamox. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't do anything for me except make me sick. So, okay, so I had altitude sickness at Guitar Lake. I couldn't eat, had no energy. So I did the summit with no food in my stomach. And then Somebody had the brilliant idea to stay at Lone Pine Lake, which is still at like 9,000, I think. So we stayed another night at elevation, and I couldn't eat there again. Were you puking and stuff? I wasn't puking. I just felt like I I had the flu. 
but right, no puking. Yeah, yeah not, it couldn't hold any food down. I didn't puke, but I just couldn't get it down in the first place. This is how bad it was. I love big, bold beers, and I like Stone's uh, Arrogant Bastard. So we get down to the Whitney Portal, and I tried to drink a beer, that one of those beers. I couldn't drink it. I was just off-put by everything at that point. Somebody had an orange on the top of Whitney, and I wanted an orange <laughs> so bad after that. And went all the way down. We got down to the town and go in the supermarket, and I got an orange. And it was like the best orange ever. <laughs> yeah, man, that's that's how you learn to appreciate things like oranges. And, yeah. And yet, despite that, you wanted to go back. You did it three more times or two oh, more no times. Kidding. Yeah. Well, I've done it from. Onion Valley, I've done it from Horseshoe Meadows, and then I did the High Sierra Trail from Sequoia up over Whitney and out. It's awesome. Yeah, and for people that aren't familiar with the High Sierra Trail, that parallels a lot of the JMT, John Muir Trail, but it's at higher altitude. No, actually... Oh, it, it doesn't parallel? It, no, it totally intersects. Uh, it, it's a 90 degree. So basically, oh. you go from Sequoia National Forest, which is Western Sierra, and then you f- go basically straight towards Mount Whitney, which is east of there, and you're crossing. It's it's a big ramp, so you're going from I would say say six thousand feet to fourteen five, but you're doing it over a period of five days. It's not very hard. Pretty cool is you get to see the headwater of the Kern River, which is a little tiny lake up there. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. If you ever get a chance to do that one, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the ones I'd like to to knock off at some point in the future. And I will be headed to the Sierra, or I should be, assuming weather doesn't change everything, um, next Thursday. So, oh, awesome. So I should be getting to um, relive a, a section of the JMT between, basically the sections that cross Silver and um, Selden Passes. Okay, cool. In between, in between Paiute and like Virginia Lake. That's awesome. Lake area. Yeah. It's still on my bucket list, depending on how things work out in the future (laughs) speaking of that so let's go ahead and transition into that future right now so one of the things i want to talk to you about and i just want to i just want to let you know mister i'm not gonna have anything to talk about we are one hour 11 minutes in okay um i told you you'd have stuff (laughs) so you are about to undertake a very large life change yes i've um i've decided i'm kind of done with the the rat race a little bit I want to concentrate on my building my online businesses and my forex trading. For me to make that transition, I needed to reduce my costs and also need a change of location. So I'm moving to the Philippines. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you you built up, you explained what's going on, and then you just gave us a quick, I'm moving to the Philippines. So that's a pretty big change. So as we pointed out, you grew up basically in and around Orange County, California, yep. mm-hmm. your whole life, you've, you've lived out here. Yep. And now you're not just going to move to a different state. You're going to move to a different continent. Yep. Probably as far from this continent, more or less as you can get. Pretty much. Without going to Antarctica or something. Yeah. Um, so let's discuss why the Philippines, because there are a lot of places you could have chosen. Yeah. Okay. So my history on travel is I've only been to Mexico. As a kid, we used to write notes for our friends and say, John has permission to go to Mexico, mom. And we we were 16, (laughs) we were going down there all the time. Uh, I've been to Cabo, I've been to Mazalan, and went to Monterey, Mexico for canyoneering, which is a great experience. So anyway, that's my travel experience. So I know nothing about other countries, but I've seen a lot of good things online 
talking about the Philippines. Part of that is they speak English, first of all. That's the major draw for me. I can barely speak Spanish. If I was to try to learn a non-Latin-based language, I think it would be a challenge. It's not insurmountable, but I want to be able to hit the ground running. So that's why I chose Philippines, for, of all places. And the people are really cool. Uh, they're amazing. So I spent 15 days over there in March, I think it was, April. And just for people to know, this is being recorded in mid-July. Yeah, the people are amazing. I, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people, but then, so I went to a waterfall on Cebu Island. The name escapes me at the moment. So I'm riding my scooter that I rented down there, and some guy yells out, do you need a guide for the waterfall? I really probably don't need a guide, but sure, why not? Uh, we meet this guy. He gets one of his buddies. We go hike up to this beautiful waterfall area. Uh, it's There's monkeys in the trees. There's you know plush forest. Uh, of course, it's got um, the palm trees and all the stuff that go with it. So we got up there. We do cliff jumping and stuff like that, which is an absolute blast. On the way out, I was mentioned something about the palm trees and... They were telling me what the palm trees are about, what they do with the stuff. And I said, well, I've never had a fresh coconut in my life. They don't sell them in the States because of pests and stuff. They're like, I'll take care of that. So we go down to his uh, Sorry Sorry store, which is kind of like a uh, mom-and-pop version of a 7-Eleven. It's a very it's a convenient store that's very small. Anyway, he climbs a tree and goes and gets me a fresh coconut, takes his machete, chops it open, gets it to me, and it's like the best. I can verify that a fresh coconut is far, far, far more delicious than whatever coconut water or coconut milk or anything anyone's drinking out of a can or a box or anything. Fresh yeah. coconut tastes so good, and the pulp is really good, too. Yeah, it's awesome. And then once you're done with the water, you chop it in half, and then you take a piece of the coconut skin and use it as a spoon and scoop out the uh, jelly on the inside of it. Which is awesome also. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. So anyways, we're hanging out there. One of the guys says, hey, you want to go swimming? So we walk across this two-lane street, and we're swimming out there in the ocean. His kids, his neighbors, his family are all there. We're messing around. It was a great time. And then one of his buddies comes over and says, hey, you want to go take out the outriggers and go over to that Sandspit Island? So we hop on the boats, and... We go over there, we're chasing dolphins the whole way, taking videos, we're jumping wakes, each other's boat wakes and stuff. And they take me out to the Sandspit Island, which is probably 15 feet wide at this point and about 200 yards long. And I don't know which way the tide's going. Uh, one of the guys drops me off, says, hey, I gotta get some gas, I'll be right back. He leaves me on this island by myself. <laughs> I'm like, what the and This heck? is the person you just met this day. Yeah, so exactly. He, he could be screwing you over if he really Right, yeah. The tide's going down, fortunately. So that's a good thing. The island starts getting bigger, and then he comes back within 10, 15 minutes, which is cool. But anyway, we go back. We're, again, playing on the way home, chasing more dolphins and stuff. This is meeting some a group of people that I didn't know out several hours earlier, and they basically welcomed me into their lives. It was amazing. You don't get that here. You know, living in Southern California, the only people I get acknowledged by is the barista or the woman at the supermarket or man, and that's about it. And it's a, it, there people 
go out of their way to say hi and get you engaged in conversation. It's awesome. Yeah. So you spent 15 days there. I know you yep. spent a lot of time on the beach because you're a beach guy. Yeah. Anything you'd like to say about the beaches there? The tourist areas are really cool. Uh, they're the kind of places where, of course, there's bars and restaurants everywhere. And they're the kind of place where you you can get a boat and they'll take you out and you can see the uh sea turtles and corals and whatever other animals starfish they take you around on these giant outrigger boats and take you around which is really cool but the tourist areas for me at being a solo traveler were was not my idea of fun so i te- i got off the beaten track i found a, a surf beach that i stayed in a, a hut basically off the ground like an a-frame type hut and my view in the morning was looking out the window or the door frame and there's a dream catcher and there's the beach and surf it was like the coolest thing ever that night i spent 20 bucks on the room and dinner they collected it at the end they trusted me that much it's it, there's a different level of way things are done there it's just amazing. So I love it. That's That was part of the things that sold me on going there. Yeah. W- um, would it be accurate to say that this is maybe part of the thought? Like you're talking about sleeping in this, this beach hut, waking up, and you're staring at the ocean, and, and these are the things you see first thing in the morning, which in a lot of the ways can be what certain people's like vacation or honeymoon right. is like. They have like a few days like that. It's part of the thought for you is, well, screw it. Why should that be my vacation or honeymoon if I can make my lifestyle that? That's, that's a lot of it. I've been in Irvine for the last five years and I've worked through COVID and all that and I never left the house. If I really wanted to do that same lifestyle, I could do that there except on the weekends go to some fantastic beach that you know people would pay thousands of dollars to go see i'm there it's it's no big deal and again amazing people so i can make friends over there with the locals or expats or whoever and and do this stuff so let's talk about how you're making this change Mm -hmm. so you've got to leave here and you own a lot of stuff yep what are you doing about that okay so I made my decision on May 15th, basically. So at that time, I started putting all the stuff I could sell on Craigslist. My camera equipment, my e-bike, anything that had any value to anybody else, I started listing it all. And I've sold quite a bit of that stuff. I still have a little bit more to go. And then I've got three vehicles I have to deal with. My pickup truck, I've got a Harley road king and i've got a a 71 corvette that all have mechanical issues of one sort or another and need to be polished so my focus during this time is i've been emptying out the house giving away everything to the point where when i was i had a frying pan and a plastic rice spoon for the rice for the rice maker and that's how i was eating for days (laughs) I had nothing. (laughs) Anyway, so I made the transition. I got out of the place. It took me, it was the hardest month of my life was getting rid of the stuff out of the house and cleaning up and getting to the point where it was respectable when I turned it back to the the landlord. I I moved into my mom's place where I put my bedroom set in her spare room. I have couple baker's racks that I'm going to put all my climbing and canyon gear and anything that I 
want to keep for uh, mementos in her garage and I'm getting out of town. So hopefully within four weeks, I'll be over in Philippines. How many bags do you want to show up with? I'm going to have a 65 liter pack. That is it. So if it doesn't fit in that pack, it's not going with you. It's not going because the challenge is I don't know where I want to stay. So far, I've been to Cebu Island and Palawan Island. Uh, They're completely different. Palawan's like rice paddies and water buffalo if you're not in town. It's an amazing place. Uh, Cebu's more, more big city. So now I'm going to go over to Manila and there's a section called GBC. I don't remember what it stands for. It's kind of like the Beverly Hills of Manila. So I'm going to go check that out. And it's reasonably priced and all that for Americans. So I'm going to go check that out, see if that's where I want to be. And if I don't find that's the place, I'll get my backpack and go on to the next place until I figure out really where I want to be. Yeah, so let's talk about your plan once you get there and what your overall goals are. Yeah, so the plan, obviously, is you show up there and in Manila and get my feet on the ground and understand what's going on there. So I'm also working on my online businesses and YouTube videos and Forex trading. So I need to buckle down and, you know, spend my days doing that stuff and evenings. Getting income coming in off those pursuits is my number one goal. So if I stay in Manila for, even if I don't care for it as much, better than being, paying a lot of money here. For a place that I don't, I don't really leave. I mean, so anyway, that's the goal is to get settled in first. Then I'll go find the place I want to be. Hopefully, make this you know a long-term proposition. I want to be. I don't want to have to come back to the states unless I have to. Let's put it that way. And is part of the goal once you get there to the Philippines to start traveling to other areas in Asia and maybe elsewhere? Oh yeah, I'm definitely going to take advantage of the cheap airfares. I think it's like a hundred bucks round trip to Thailand. Uh, you can go, you know, anywhere in Asia is pretty inexpensive once you're there. So yeah, that, I'm going to take advantage of all that. If I find out I like a different country, yeah, well, I end up there. Who knows? Or I could maybe at some point say, you know what? South America. I have no idea. Nothing keeping me in one spot. What do you think the change will be in your cost of living immediately? It's a huge change. I don't even want to say how much my rent was here, but in Philippines, if you want to live on a reasonable budget and not in GBC, you can live for $1,000 very comfortably, including travel insurance and all the stuff that comes along with it. If you have $3,000, you're a king. You can get the biggest house you want. You can get you know pretty much anything. It's really inexpensive to live there. So do you think it's the kind of difference where one month of your life here can get you three or four or five there? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is about being an online business, I should be able to make $1,000 a month pretty easy. You know, well, 2000 if I pay taxes, but that's pretty easy to do. So I, I think it's going to be really cost effective to live there and all the upsides of you know cool people and cool places and different culture will your businesses still be considered u.s businesses or will you establish them as philippine businesses? no they'll be u.s businesses so you'll still be responsible for u.s taxes and right unfortunately i didn't think ahead and it'll be california taxes which is outrageous but then again depending on how successful i am at it if I'm just surviving over there, it's not very much in taxes. If I hit it big like I'm planning on, then 
I'll figure out something else out. <laughs> well, also, if you're if you're living large, if you're bringing in big bucks, um, you could afford those taxes because you won't need yeah. as much of the money to survive. Exactly, because Forex uh, is the most scalable business you can ever do. It's Tell people what that is. For- foreign exchange is uh, trading, let's say, U.S. dollar versus the British pound. Just like if you look at a stock chart, there's trends. Basically, when the banks need to move money from one currency to another, they buy and sell. There's market manipulation just like there is in any other thing. But for me, Forex moves every single day. It'll trend up, down, or do nothing every day. I first started learning how to read charts on cryptocurrencies, and they do nothing, or they go straight through the roof, or they go straight down, and there's nothing in between. You can't predict trends so that's why i trade forex you're going to be leaving the place you know where you've spent all of your life mm-hmm. you'll be leaving all the people you know mm-hmm. um, you're going to be leaving most of the stuff you've owned yep uh, you're going to be going to a place that you've only spent two weeks in yep and you're going to try to start a new life there yep. which hopefully you'll be very successful at but i've got to imagine there are certain concerns and maybe even some fears or worries. So what are those things? Well, the biggest concern is I'll get over there and I'll find that it's hard to meet people, harder to meet, make friends, friendship type relationships. That's one. And then being on potential front lines of World War III, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge one. And Philippines has got a big target on, on it because it's uh, former military bases and there are some activities going on so anyway that, enough of that well, i guess the good news is you could move to a different country <laughs> yeah if you have to if i could get out of there pretty quick yeah but yeah you know, at the end of the day though if i find out i i can't live there i decided I, I can't live there i can always come back to the states right and i don't expect to lose my friends over this because i do plan on coming back occasionally to do things just you know traveling to the u.s to have fun as you know with our friendships you don't see each other for months on end sometimes. Yeah. And then you get around a campfire and you catch up in 20 minutes, you're your buddy's still. Well, we're also all pretty understanding of like these somewhat open lifestyles mm-hmm. where we know that we have friends like, for instance, Alden, who's been on the show a bunch of times, who he might disappear to Europe and Asia for five years and then come back and we'll all still be friends with them. Yeah. We won't be like, you didn't call me enough and get angry. Yeah. Like we understand people are pursuing these different things and we try to support each other in those pursuits. Yep. There's some people I'll miss more than others. And, um, you know, my buddy, Randy Ball. She's going to be so happy you said her. <laughs> I mentioned her. We became friends about a year and a half, two years ago, and we've been inseparable. We've been to Mexico canyoneering. We, I've played hooky during the week and gone cannoneering or climbing with her and oh you mean like today like today we're good friends you know i've stayed at her place and uh, made her dogs are really cool they're really they're, they're my buddies now they come when i yell at them you know that kind of stuff so we've, been, we've become really good friends and um I'll, I'll miss being around her a lot because i see her almost every week compared to the rest of my friends but yeah other than that uh, that's one of the more challenging things for me on this entire move at this point. Well, the good thing is you'll you'll figure these things out. And again, like you said, you can come back to visit or you can change your mind and then just try some. Maybe you'll decide, oh, the Philippines thing doesn't work. I'm going to go to Korea or, yeah, oh, yeah. or South Africa or who knows. You'll, you'll have those options available to you. Yeah, that's I'm trying to live that, that digital nomad lifestyle where 
I work and I also play. And it doesn't matter where I'm at, especially when in trading currencies, the markets are open 24 by six. Yeah, 24 six. So I can trade any time zone. I prefer different times of day. Yeah, I can tr- do I can do that anywhere. So was- typically you can't just hop over to another country on a whimsy and decide you want to live there and there's going to be visas and various other things involved. So what's the visa situation for this? Philippines is actually pretty easy. So right off the bat, you get a 30 day tourist visa. Uh, the only requirement is, you know, a COVID questionnaire. That's it. And then every 30 days you can renew it for 60 bucks or something like that. That can go on for several years. And then at some point you have to leave the country for 24 hours and then you can come back and reset the clock and do it over again. Not that I'm going to do this because there's always, uh, there's marriage visas, so you can get your green card essentially. Uh, there's retirement visas where you can deposit 60 grand in their bank and they'll give you a visa and pay some fees, of course. So it's not very challenging there. And then most of the Asian countries, basically you can get a, a tourist visa on demand for like 30 days, 60 days. It's when you want to stay for long term, then you have Any sort of residency, right? You're right. And I guess in theory, you could always hop around to different places if you should decide, unless you've like established yourself in some way where you need to be somewhere specifically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, then again, leaving the country for 24 hours is not that big a deal. Right. (laughs) The island Palawan I was on, you could literally see uh, Indonesia if you were on the, at the end of the island. It's that close. You know, you get on a, a ferry and be there in a couple hours and it's you no know, big deal. So we're getting to the point where I think we need to wrap this up, especially since the sun has now set and we're all alone in this little park in Redlands that we <laughs> never knew of before we showed up here a couple hours ago. Yep. Anything we haven't talked about or anything else about your move that you want to mention before we wrap this up? I really hope that it works out and I hope, it, I wish that... Uh, I don't want to lose my friends over this. That's the biggest challenge, but I don't think I will. I I don't think you will either. And I also think in this sort of scenario, if you really want to make it work, you will figure out how to make it work. Yeah, exactly. I've heard that, you know, like 60, 90 days after leaving the country, you start getting homesick and you start little nuisance things start becoming problems. But um, I hope all that goes well and I can make this stick. It's better than the alternatives that I've got set up right now. And the nice thing for people listening to this is this is going to come out a few months from the time it was recorded. So in theory, by the time this is available to the public, you will have been in the Philippines for some period of time. Yep. And I am going to check in with you and have you send me a recording or something, or at least an email to let me know how things are going and what's up. And then people will know yeah, definitely. Where, where things stand with this. You can always do a phone interview, Skype or whatever. So yeah, I'll definitely do it. As some people who listen to this might know, I haven't done this show for over three years. And this is the first interview of the season that I've done. So this is the first time I've pulled out these mics to do on these interviews in over three years. And until like a few minutes ago, I forgot that I always had this final question. <laughs> is there a final thought you'd like to leave everyone with before we go. I wish everyone the best and I hope that we can uh, all come together during these challenging times with, you know, we got wars, we got um, politics that are rampant and I hope everyone can, you know, come together and act as a civil society. That's my biggest hope. I think that is something we can all agree (laughs) to stand behind yeah we just all have to do the work to make that happen yep so i want to thank you a bunch for 
coming out and doing this. For those that don't know, which would be everyone that's listening to this, we ran a canyon out here uh, in Forest Falls, uh, which is like one of the more popular canyons in Southern California called Monkey Face. So we spent all morning in the hot ass sun and then running through this cold ice water. And then you still agreed to sit down with me for, you know, almost two hours and uh, record this uh, in the dark. So I appreciate that. And I hope, no, I know you can make this Philippine thing work. And I look forward to hearing about what's going on. And, and what I most wish for you is a year from today, I talk to you and you say, best decision I ever made. Whether you're still in the Philippines or you've moved somewhere else or whatever's going on, whatever you decided. But I hope you say, best decision I've ever made, you know, took, took, took hold of my life and decided to guide it where I wanted to go. And everything's fallen into place. And it, this was great. I hope to be able to give you that update. I'm pretty sure I will. And I really do thank you for having the opportunity to talk. And uh, I'll definitely have to do this again. Yeah, awesome, man. Have an awesome time in the Philippines. All right, thank you. So if you're listening to this show, I know that you know that hydration is important. But hydration isn't just for super active activities. We need to stay hydrated all the time. I bet that when you are at work or when you're on a long road trip or you're traveling across country or across the world and you're spending a lot of time in airports, I bet you're not hydrating yourself enough. So yes, we know that hydration is important. It's important at all times. And that is what Liquid IV is here to help you do. And Liquid IV comes in a bunch of delicious flavors, 12 to be precise, including things such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, lemon lime, pina colada, watermelon, strawberry, passion fruit, and it goes on. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. And you want to know why? It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, vitamin C. It has three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks, made with quality ingredients, non-GMO, and free from gluten, dairy, and soy for anyone with any sort of dietary restriction. But here's the thing that I think I like the most about Liquid IV. They are dedicated to equitable access to clean and abundant water across the world. So they're partnering with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in over 50 countries around the world. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code GOPODCAST at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code GOPODCAST at liquidiv.com. So John did hold true to his word and move to the Philippines. It took a little bit longer than he had intended, but he has been there for a few weeks now. And he did send me this update. So here, in his own words, is a look at how his trip is going. Since our last discussion on November 25th, 2023, I made my move to the island of Cebu, Philippines, where I took up residence in a fishing town named Moobol. 
known for tourist swimming with sardines, snorkeling, and diving. This was the culmination of five months' effort to downsize my possessions. I sold or gave away everything except a few small appliances and my outdoor gear. The hard part was fixing up a 1971 Corvette, which had not been started in decades. The Corvette took months to get started and running due to impossibly stuck bolts, a cascade of part failures due to lack of use, and having to order parts online and waiting. Fortunately, the car sold in hours once finished and posted online. When everything was finalized, I made the move with very few plans, except for hotel reservations in Cebu City for two nights and a goal to end up in Mall Ball. Once recovered from jet lag, I hopped on a three-hour bus ride with a 65-liter backpack, a book bag of electronics, high hopes, and headed to my new home. Once arriving in Mall Ball, I then set myself up with temporary lodging while I got my bearings. Before the trip, I was introduced to Vadislav Steklak through mutual friends, who has lived in town for four years and guides local canyons. Once I arrived, we met for a beer and hit it off. Since then, we have done several exploratory trips to find new canyons, descended a previously undocumented canyon, and ran a few technical canyons south of town. These canyons feature warm water, jungle conditions, and many opportunities for first descents. Moving to a new country with only an exploratory trip under my belt has been a bit of a challenge and has been lots of fun. I look forward to branching out and seeing more of the country and the outdoor activities it offers. And with that, we have come to the part of the show where I invite you all to go to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 110 with John Gray, and there you will find photographs of his past adventures and photographs of his life now in the Philippines and links to everything we talked about in today's show. And if you would like to get in touch with us here at the show, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can send me an email, jason at gogetoutside.com, or you can send us a text or leave a voicemail at 818 818- 8-925-0106. And as always, I want to plead with you to go to your podcast purveyor of choice, make sure you are subscribed, rate and review the show, but most importantly, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. And just a reminder that at our website, gogetoutside.com, there is now that help out page that details all of the ways you can help out this show, including going and subscribing to our new YouTube channel. Next time on the show... Come back January 16th for a conversation with Randy Ball. You may recognize her name because she was mentioned earlier in this episode. So we're doing a twofer. We've got the John Gray episode that you just listened to. And then his good buddy, Randy Ball, is coming up in two weeks. And spoiler alert for that, she is also undergoing a move to a new place, though not across the globe, only across the country. So you'll hear about that. You'll hear about her life as a mother, climber, canyoneer and cancer survivor so come back for what i think is a sincerely inspirational episode and a great thing to put a kick in your ass and make sure you're still working on your new year's resolutions or goals or however you like to look at it so come back january 16th for a great conversation with randy ball see you then